0: Gradient. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Anthony English on the topic Our Lady and the Assumption. This August 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield Anthony English is a Catholic apologist and a regular speaker at Lumen Verum. Thank you, everybody. Well, yeah, today is a great feast day—the feast of the Assumption and uh, the fifteenth of August, which uh, goes back uh, many hundreds of years, uh, probably to around the fourth, the fourth century. I'm not going to speak so much on the on the liturgy of the Assumption, on the uh, on the history of it, uh, but uh, I really wanted to put it more in the context of, uh, of the meaning of the, the assumption. <clears throat> well, first of all, what is the assumption? And uh, we read in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that finally the Immaculate Virgin, that's Our Lady, preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up Body and soul into heavenly glory. So I'll read that again. When the course of her earthly life was finished, very, uh, very precise word. When the course of her earthly life was finished, uh, she was taken up, body and soul, into heavenly glory. And so, that is the the doctrine or the dogma of the Assumption, which is that our Lady, at the end of her life was taken body and soul into heaven. Well, why? She was taken into heavenly glory, exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. Her son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we know, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And uh, to be... Fully conformed to her, to be part of Christ, uh, conformed to him, to be part of Christ. Well, we become part of Christ. How does that happen? What is it that configures us to Christ that makes us other Christs? Yeah, baptism is the is, is the gateway of the sacraments, and uh, baptism <coughs> confers on us grace, and grace is that share in the divine light, <coughs> which makes us uh, like God. Members of uh, Christ, uh, imitators of God in His divine nature, and Mary had this—had the fullness of grace, as the as the scriptures tell us. Hail, full of grace, in Luke chapter one. And so, the assumption at the end of her life, a lady was taken body and soul into heaven. Her body and soul, uh, she experienced the resurrection. The resurrection come early. As we know, at the end of time, we will all rise from the dead. The good will rise unto everlasting life, and the and, and the wicked will rise also into everlasting death. Why is that? Well, the thing is that our bodies, we're not pure spirits. Did anybody here have dinner? I've got to get out of the habit, but coming along to Lim and Verum, and speaking about food, because a lot of people have had dinner, <laughs> and that just reinforces the point that I was about to make, which is that we're not angels, we're not pure spirits. We do, we get hungry, and uh, and I keep getting into trouble. I tell you, what it's, the worst is when I come during Lent and I start speaking about chocolate or something. But I'm not going <laughs> to do that. the The thing is that we have, we, we are not pure spirits. We are body and soul. God created us body and soul. And since he created us, our souls in our bodies, our souls giving life to our bodies, our uh, our bodies share in our, our good works or in our evil works, our evil deeds. And we use our bodies to, to, to glorify God. And so God, in his turn, glorifies us. Glorifies even the body. Pope uh, Benedict said this very well on the Feast of the Assumption in 2005. He said that the Feast of the Assumption is a day of joy. God has won. Love has won. It is one life. Love has shown that it's stronger than death. Mary was taken up body and soul into heaven, says the Pope, there is even room in God for the body. There is a temptation for us, uh, for all of us to, to live our lives in, in, uh, a, a great divorce within our lives, within ourselves, to live a double life. And the, the body can sometimes drag us down into the gutter and we can or we can re- react the other way, and we can re- look on the body as something evil, which it isn't at all. It's something good. And the assumption, the dogma of the assumption, tells us, reminds us that the body itself is is good, blessed by God, temple of the Holy Spirit. We see this most of all in in Mary, in in giving birth. Uh, it says. Um, says uh, one of the saints here, I'm not sure who, in giving birth, you, you kept your virginity. In your Dormition, we'll get back to that word in a minute, you did not leave the world the mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. So, we've just mentioned the close of her life on earth and the Dormition. The dormition, asleep sleep. Okay, we have dormitories, and the, uh, and, uh, the, the word dormir uh, is to is to sleep. The dormition. So when Pope Pius the the twelfth in nineteen fifty defined the dogma of the assumption, he he didn't he didn't define whether Mary died or not. We don't know whether she did or not. Well, you might say, well, of course she, she died. And she was human. Or else you might say, well, why should she die? She didn't have original sin. So why should she die? So, those are two points which we'll, we'll get back to. But just keep that in mind. The Dormition, uh, the, the, the definition of the dogma, the Pope didn't want to get into that question of whether a lady died or not. That wasn't what he was defining. What he was saying was that at the end of her life, whether it was by death or not, uh, her body and soul were raised into glory in heaven. And so heaven is a physical place. Uh, if you say, well, heaven is a state, well, it is. It's a state of soul, but it's also a physical place. How do we know that? We know two to, to human bodies that are there. The Christ ascended into heaven and Mary was assumed into heaven. Christ, actually even that language, we don't speak of the ascension of Mary, but the assumption of Mary. And I assume you know what that means. uh, Christ rose from the dead by his own power. There's a little joke there. Christ rose uh, from the dead by his own power and ascended into heaven by his own power. But Mary did not ascend into heaven by her own power. She was assumed, tacit voice, she was assumed into heaven, body and soul. So we speak of the ascension of our Lord. What did he say even when he he was dying? He said, "And no one takes my life, I give it up freely. And so too by his own power he rose from the dead. During the French Revolution, they tried to create a new uh, religion, uh, worshipping man, the glory of man, the glories of nature, and so on. And, uh, and I don't know whether it was uh, Robespierre or uh, you know one of the leaders of the French Revolution was complaining that people were following this new man-made religion, and uh, they were you know was in favour of peace and love of humanity and so on, and nobody was following it. They weren't getting the numbers. Somebody told him, look, I suggest that you do everything that you're doing but one other thing. Predict your own death, have yourself crucified in the most gruesome way, and then rise from the dead in three days, and then people will follow you. See, Christ rose from the dead. He showed his own power by rising from the dead. Christ is the head of the mystical body, and then he led Mary who's the first of its members to heaven. The Readings from the from the uh, the Mass today, the first reading was from the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, where St. Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. Well, why did they take that reading for the Assumption of Our Lady? It's to show that she was following in his footsteps. She is the, the first of the believers. As Elizabeth said, blessed are you because you have believed the promises that were made uh, made for you would be fulfilled. Once again, a quote from Pope Benedict. We have a mother in heaven, and the mother of God, the mother of the Son of God, is our mother. He himself has said that. I'm always impressed when I read uh, uh, Pope Benedict's homilies, especially because he has... great theologian but he has a very simple very accessible style we have a mother in heaven he says very simply and the mother of God, the mother of the son of God is our mother, he himself has said so, behold your mother heaven is open heaven has a heart and uh, so why the assumption well death as we know is the separation of the body and soul and the body becomes corrupt while the soul which is immortal it can't die, goes to meet the judgement of God and then to await its reunion with the body Okay, the body corrupts in the grave but Mary for our lady was different she is completely holy completely penetrated by God and so she was uh, pre- preserved from any stain or any state of original sin and also from any corruption so even if she did die even if she did die she, her body did not did not corrupt in in the grave And the church contemplates in Mary in the, in the assumption what she, the church herself, is called to be on earth. You see, you think about it. What are we called to be? We've got, we're going to be raised, we're going to be conformed to Christ, members of Christ, His dwelling place. How do we become the dwelling place of Christ? How do we become the dwelling of God? Well, that happens through faith. That's the first. The, The first. We don't praise God's here's once again Pope Benedict this time from 2006 in praising Mary the church did not invent something adjacent to scripture she responded to the prophecy henceforth all generations will call me blessed think of those awesome words that our lady said to her kinswoman Elizabeth from this day forward all generations will call me blessed now, that prophecy has been fulfilled in the Catholic Church throughout history, calling Mary blessed. That's amazing prophecy. I mean, you couldn't prophesy anything like that about yourself by your own powers. Henceforth, all generations will call me anything. Sorry, all generations are not really going to forget you fairly soon after you die. But, uh, this, this was what she was able to say. So, we don't praise God, said Pope Benedict, we don't praise God sufficiently by keeping silent about His saints. Especially Mary, the Holy One who became His dwelling place on earth. <coughs> Imagine if you walked into an art gallery, a beautiful, beautiful art gallery of great, great works of art, and you wanted to meet the artist who had done these beautiful works. And you went in and you closed your eyes and refused to look at any of the works of art because you wanted to praise to the you wanted to give thanks and praise to the to the artist. You're insulting to do that. If you refuse to look at his work. We don't praise God sufficiently by keeping silence about his saints. So Mary, the Holy One, she became his dwelling place on earth. And uh, being God's dwelling place on earth in her, the eternal dwelling place has already been prepared. So think of that beautiful image. You've got Mary becomes the mother of God. When did that happen? The Annunciation, and the Word was made flesh. At the Annunciation, when Mary said to the angel Gabriel, "Be it done unto me according to thy word." And at that moment, the Word became flesh. God became man. Being God's dwelling place on earth, in her, the eternal dwelling place has already been prepared. So, her body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, or they're meant to be, through through grace, through our sharing of God's grace. Her body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it's also the temple of the word of the son of the second person of the blessed trinity she's a, a, a living tabernacle and, uh, and, and this constitutes the whole content of the dogma of the assumption of Mary body and soul into heaven and glory she's blessed totally in body and soul and forever she became the Lord's dwelling place so of Mary we could say that God is home and you know, it is his home to stay forever the grace of the assumption so Mary was the mother of God Mary was the mother of God and she glorified God in her body as we are all meant to do her body was a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, it was also the temple of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. In fact, all graces were given to Mary in view of her divine motherhood. That's the most important of the. We have the four dogmas of the the four Marian dogmas. A dogma, by the way, is uh, is a, a a belief which we are all bound to believe under under pain of sin. And that sounds very dogmatic. Well, it is. And there is, it is. Pope Paul speaks of that. He, he, Pope Paul speaks of it. He says, this is de fide. This is old faith. That this is old faith. This is de fide. And this is dogma. That we, we are uh, uh, bound to believe. And there are four uh, to do it with our Lady. The first is, the first in time is, uh, first in the order of Mary's uh, chronologically is her conception that she was conceived free from all stain of original sin. She was conceived in grace. That doesn't mean that her parents uh didn't have uh didn't have original sin, but means that she was preserved by a singular preservation, not because of anything she did. God by a most singular decree preserved her from the stain of original sin, which has been passed on to all of us through your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. And uh, I missed a few generations. Now, the the thing is that Our Lady, so the Immaculate Conception is first. (coughs) The uh, next came the uh, divine maternity that a lady conceived and, and bore a son who was God. So Mary is the mother of God. She's the mother of the person. Sometimes people say, oh, but no, she's the mother of, his human nature. No, sorry, that's not the way that we understand motherhood. I don't say, uh, you know, if my if my son kicks the, kicks a ball and it smashes the neighbour's window, I don't tell my neighbour, oh look, it wasn't my son who did it, it was his human nature. Wouldn't work. It's my son who did it. And uh, and even though I can't say, well, I'm the mother, I'm the, I can't say I'm the mother, but I can't say I'm the father. Of the, I'm, I say I'm the father of the person, but I'm not really the father of his soul. But I still am the same. I'm the father of the person. I didn't make his soul. And uh, and so when we say Mary is the mother of the person, the mother of whom? Who's that person? That person is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So this is the, the second dogma. The first one we saw was the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was preserved from all stain of, sin, of original sin, from the very first moment of her conception. The second is the divine maternity, and that's the most important one. Everything, every grace that is given to Mary, every grace that is given through Mary is in virtue of the divine maternity, the divine motherhood. Because we can imagine an unworthy mother, we may know of some, we can imagine an unworthy priest, but I can't really imagine an unworthy mother of God. If you were to make your mother, how would you make her? Well, God made His mother. He made the best mother suited for Him. And so the immaculate conception, of the divine maternity, the perpetual virginity—that uh, Mary, uh, she conceived and bore a son, remained a virgin. Mm. ante, partem, partum, in partum, and postpartum, uh, as St. Augustine said. Before, during birth, and after birth, she remained a virgin forever. And uh, the potential virginity and then, uh, and then the assumption of Our Lady. Once again, we see that her body was freed from all stain or, or corruption. Why? In honor of the great dignity of that body that was uh, bestowed on it by receiving uh, Christ, the Word made flesh. Now we too we share in a in a way in that uh, in that dignity <coughs> when we receive Holy Communion. We participate in that future. That's that pledge of future glory. The Holy Communion. It uh, honors, it glorifies our own bodies if we receive, we if we receive holy communion worthily. You know the grace of the, the assumption. It shows us something very important, which is the value of the human body. See what we do. We do in our bodies. God doesn't just reward our souls. We're not going to be punished only in our souls. If we be punished. We do, we do things in our bodies. Good and bad. We, what good things do we do with our bodies? Well, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We do things like we pray. Why do we make the sign of the cross? We actually move our lips. Use our voice. Use our hands. Why do we do this? Can't you just pray to God in your heart? Yes, of course you can. But because grace Perfects nature. Grace doesn't destroy nature. Grace builds on nature and perfects it. It uses our human nature. We see that uh, that we, in what we might call the um, the sacramental not, uh, in the sacramental life. The, it's very incarnational. Is that all of the sacraments take material elements and elevate them to be channels of grace. Ordinary things, water and oil and bread, and wine, and elevates them to, to something supernatural, something above human nature, something great. So, the Word was made flesh, and so sins of the flesh, or we might even call them sins against the flesh, uh, they created this conformity with Christ. They, they do the opposite of glorifying the Lord in your body. And now, when we speak of sins of the flesh, people think of sexual sins, and certainly they are sins of the flesh, sins against the flesh. You could call it abuse of the flesh. But there are many others, uh, such as uh, use of use of drugs, drug, drug abuse, this sort of thing, or or stealing. Oh, uh, so I didn't steal. So I didn't kill your person with my hand. No, no. And that's not going to work in the, in the court of law. Your hand isn't going to go to jail. You are. You used your hand. You did. You glorified God in your body or you didn't in your body. We, we glorify God in our bodies by using our bodies to pray, to do honest and just work, by our speech, our looks, every good work that we do with the use of the body. Driving a car. Can get you to heaven. Well, it depends on how you drive, can make you get there faster, but, uh, 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 but driving a car can get you to heaven. Just the little bit of courtesy that you show on the road. It's, a, it's a, amazing. Actually, I know a, I know a case of somebody who drove a car who, who, and it really did. There were two people, actually, they got caught in this traffic jam in in Argentina and they were caught in this traffic jam and it was a serious traffic jam three hours <laughs> no one ever was apart three hours in a traffic jam yeah, and you, you think you had a slow trip coming here tonight eh? and uh anyway, it's a three hours boy what do you do I mean you're standing there sitting there you know, start talking so this driver started talking to the, to the to the girl in the car next to him I started talking, 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 and they got married. Not in the traffic jam, but, uh, they, 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 uh, give it to the church on time, eh? But they, 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 they ended up being married. Now, hopefully that was a holy marriage and we'll take them to heaven. Now, don't try this at home, but, uh, it's, it's very, you know, it's interesting how God uses even material circumstances that might be, humanly speaking, very frustrating for us. You miss a bus, but then suddenly, or a train, and you, suddenly you've just got a whole chunk of time that you never thought you, you were going to have. What can you do? You just have to wait. You can get angry. What do you do? Is it, maybe there's a chance for uh, God just calling you aside to glorify Him in your body. For a few minutes. Just a little bit of quiet prayer or something like that. Some, something some noble reading. The sacraments are means by which God elevates material elements to, to confer grace glorifying God in our body and this is what we see in the assumption is how God glorifies Mary in her body and he gives grace by means of bodily elements. The grace of the sacraments leads to our own ultimate glory. So, too, even in our dress, we glorify God in our bodies. Uh, the virtue of adornment, where we where we dress fittingly according to the circumstances, according to custom, and dress modestly, not outrageously, to try and draw attention to ourselves. Some people Saint Augustine says some people even like to to show off in their clothes, even even uh, some people even like to show off in how filthy they are. <laughs> To show off dirt, try and make that a cause for pride. And uh, it's the virtue of adornment. that makes us dress appropriately, modestly, without excessive show or without excessive neglect. Once again, this is a way of glorifying God in your body. And um, so the human body shares in the dignity of... Of the image of God, it's a human body precisely because it's animated by a spiritual soul. I'm quoting from the Catechism here, and it's the whole human person that is intended to become in the body of Christ a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, man is a blo- uh, must not despise his bodily life. You can do penance, but that's not out of hatred. For your body when you do penance, that's that's out of love for your soul, and that's subjecting your body, bringing it into subjection so that it can conform more to the passion of Christ, make up for your own sins as well, or for those of others. And is, is that why the, uh, the church forbade cremation for a long time, because of the body being the the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's right. Well, cremations were, uh, in, yeah, well, exactly. Cremations were forbidden, and in fact, they are permitted now, but they are not permitted on the grounds that the person couldn't, uh, couldn't be cremated on, on the should not be cremated as a sign that he despises, uh, that he rejects the resurrection of the body, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's um, like if somebody put it into his will. Uh, you know, I I expect to be cremated because I I don't want to be corrupted in the in in the earth with worms eating me, and I know that that's going to be the end for me forever. Well, yeah, that's uh yeah. Actually, even that idea of uh, uh, we we have respect for the dead. Uh, Christian funerals, you know, just throw th- throw people's bodies into the garbage bin and say, oh, there we go. Well, why not? Why not? You mentioned the French Revolution there. There was something about the, um, the, the great processions that they used to have on um, All Souls Day in the cemeteries. And they wanted to, to encourage cremation in order to discourage these processions. Yeah, the, the French Revolution wanted to, yes, I've heard that that the French Revolution they wanted to discourage uh, the the uh, honouring of relics. You see, we uh, we have we show respect for the dead. We have Christian funerals and burials. We recognise the inherent dignity of the human person. What we're really doing is we're continuing the love that that person had for his own body. We're showing respect for that. Imagine if uh, after somebody's grandmother died, he went and just threw out all of her stuff and burned it all and tore up all photos of her and just said, "Well, she's gone now." You would show some some sign of sign of reverence, of respect, of honor to recognize that love that she had herself for those objects. And uh I'm not saying that you have to keep it all, but uh, but if you if you just treated it all with contempt like it's all a hollow of rubbish. All of it, everything. Uh, even the most treasured photos or the most treasured possessions and so on, you threw them all all out. Well well that's not really showing the showing the love that that, uh, that that we owe to the human body. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and he will also raise us by his power. Do you not know, no, says St. Paul, that your bodies are members of Christ? You are not your own, so glorify God in your body. Yeah, and so this notion of relics, of honouring the relics of the saints, uh, once again is, uh, is recognising, as as we saw with St. Paul, uh, we saw that St. Paul had a, my translation is that he had a kerchief, I think it's Acts chapter 20 or... So. Uh, sorry, Acts 19. Uh, that uh, he had a kerchief, which is like a scarf or something. While he was still alive, people would take that scarf and go and um, and put it on near the sick. And then come back and bring the scarf back and then take it again. It was, it was a sign of God's power working through, even through his clothing. St. Peter would walk past, even they just even wanted for his shadow to pass, and that would, that would make people who were lame able to walk again. It's amazing. This is God glorifying the body. Well, how much more did he do it to our lady in the assumption? And so to uh, euthanasia claims to seek death with dignity. Why? Why do they use that term death with dignity? It's an implicit recognition that we're not just bodies. It's an implicit recognition that we're something more than just material in other words that we've got a soul that's why they want dignity and uh, but of course it's not real dignity if you take the life of an innocent person even if he asks for it that's not trading treating him with dignity at all and so uh, because man is not merely a, a, a body. I mean, the Manichaeans used to used to treat the body with contempt. Just yeah, the fine Manichaeans. the Manichaeans. There was a there was a, a a man walking around in the time of Saint Augustine named Manichaeus who who uh, he had his own Christian sect where he he broke away. had these very crazy ideas. Uh, that he was so spiritual that, that anything he did in the body didn't matter. So they used to have these drunken orgies, and something it doesn't matter. Well, that's only in the body. And, uh, and Saint Augustine followed them for quite a long time. And and then um, he, he was, and then he, he he gave all of that up. He he recognized that there was there was something dreadfully inconsistent there, dreadfully inhuman, to treat us like pure spirits. And then to treat our bodies with contempt like that. And uh and so, so to with people so the taking of the deliberate direct taking of an in, an innocent life, murder, can never be justified. Deliberate direct taking of an innocent life. So to people calling for abortion rights that's what they call it. Just because we call it a right doesn't mean it is a right. And they claim that it's preferable than to having unwanted children. But every person has inherent worth, and every body uh, needs needs to be treated with dignity. So we we just get um, to the question about uh, Mary's Mary's death, and then we'll just look at uh, some of the scripture uh, related to the to the uh, assumption. Did Mary die? Well, Pope John Paul gave a talk in 1995 or thereabouts. Uh, he, he gave a talk and said that Mary probably died, that the notion that she didn't die is uh, only very recent in the church. It was only the last 200, 300 years before Australia was discovered, but uh, yeah, very recently. Just last week in terms of the church. And, and, uh, that was a, that was a modern notion. He said that it was really not, um, the, the reasoning behind it was that people said, well, death, Adam, Adam was to be preserved from death. Remember? Remember that, uh, that God told him that if you eat of the fruit, you will die? Meaning that if you don't eat of the fruit, you won't die. You'll live forever and uh, And then, through sin, then that was one of the penalties of sin was that Adam was going to die. Another penalty was uh, for the woman. was there was going to be pain and childbirth, pregnancy, and so on. And uh, there was going to be uh, and so uh, Adam was to be preserved from death. Well, now, since Mary didn't have original sin, and theologians thought, well, probably then she didn't die. Sounds like a good argument, doesn't it? Well, she didn't need to die. She didn't have to die by by reason of original sin. Actually, death is natural to men. If God had created us without any grace at all, if he just created us not in sin and not in grace, a state of pure nature, not an actual historical state, but if God had created Adam and Eve without sin or without grace, just good human beings, then uh, then they would have died. They would have died because uh, because we're composed, and what's composed decomposes. But God gave a special <coughs> gift. Uh, A preternatural gift of immortality a preternatural gift means that it was it was in the human order didn't actually make them holy but in the human order Adam and Eve had uh, the power uh, never to die they were preserved from death they were to be preserved from death forever and so though death is natural to man these preternatural gifts through this preternatural gift he was preserved from death uh, it's, a, it's a difficult language, but imagine if God gave you a, if or God has given you a grace to understand, to believe that there is a Trinity. You could never have worked that out, however intelligent you were, you would never have worked it out for yourself. But God, supposing God gave you some human ability that you also hadn't worked it out for yourself, but it was just a human ability, like say the ability to do, to do maths. And so you never ever got an answer wrong. You were always able to answer every single mathematical problem. Well, that gift that you have wouldn't make you any holy, any more holy, in itself, would it? It's a preternatural gift. It's not something that you just earned just because you were naturally very very good at maths. Just supposing you woke up one morning and then you just knew all the mathematical answers. That's a that's in the human order, isn't it? It's not elevated me to grace, isn't it? I mean, someone wouldn't say, wow, he's a great mathematician, isn't he, holy? (laughs) But it's also not something that you're just getting by your own human power. It's just in the human order. Well, that's what a preternatural gift is. Now, Adam and Eve were also given these preternatural gifts, and one of them was immortality, to be freed from death. So they lost those preternatural gifts Through original sin. They also lost grace. And by original sin, uh, Adam lost grace and the (coughs) preternatural gift of immortality. And so since original sin, we carry in our own bodies death. (coughs) The living bones. That's what we are. Dragging these bones around. We've got got death written, written into our very nature. Our Lady was preserved from that. So did she die? Well, she didn't need to. But probably she did die, not out of necessity, but to be perfectly conformed, to be more perfectly conformed to her son. But we don't know whether she died or not. We don't know that definitively. Hence the church speaks of the dormition, where she lay asleep. But whether it was the sleep of Lazarus, who slept in death, or the sleep of just uh, going to sleep, And then being taken up to heaven, we don't know. And uh, But either way, if she did die, her body was not at all subject to corruption. Now, an interesting thing, because we mentioned relics. What would you say would be the most prized relics in the whole of the Catholic Church? Imagine if you had a relic of Our Lady. No country in the world, no city, no town, no hovel, nowhere in the history of the church has even claimed to have a bone or part of her body. They haven't even claimed it. Why not? This absence of relics. You see, there was this recognition of the assumption. Nobody even claimed it. I mean, there are false claims. But no one has even falsely claimed to that one, as far right, as I know. Has claimed to have a relic of our lady. And you would think that would be the most prized treasure. Be worth more than I mean, you know, people who claim false things. Sometimes you might get to tell your friends that you've got a feather from the wing of St. Michael or something, but uh, Yeah. Now the thing is uh When we go to, we read the 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 reading uh, today for the Feast of the Assumption, we had the first letter to the Corinthians, which was the firstborn of many brethren, Our Lady was, uh, following in the footsteps of her son. And then uh, we had the second reading, which was from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Now, would it be appropriate to comment on that? Oh. Okay. Yeah. So the question was, would it be appropriate to comment on the on the reading? Yeah. All right. All right. I'll. Uh, if we if we read at the end of chapter 11. Remember that uh, when the Bible was written, there weren't these chapter these chapter headings. So this passage just reads on that God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. This is the ark that's been missing for. Hundreds of years. This was the ark that was carried around, uh, you remember the Battle of Jericho? What did they do to, then the walls of Jericho fell down? and just walked around carrying the ark for, t- for three days. Walk, walked around, singing, praying, then the walls came tumbling down. And, uh, and and then the Jews mysteriously lost this most precious, most treasured ark. There was a man struck dead when the ark was about to. They had to walk carried in complete silence, and were, and and they were never to touch this this ark. Only the priests could carry it. They went. They were they had to carry it on poles, and they had a, a very very elaborate description. I think in the book of Samuel, on on uh, on how the ark was to be carried, and the poles were to go through these these rings, and it was made of the gold, the purest of the purest of the purest gold, and. And, uh, and nobody was actually allowed to touch the ark itself. The ark contained three things. One was the, uh, some of the manna from the desert. Uh, another was the rod of Jesse, the, the sign of his priesthood. And the so third were the tablets from the, uh, uh the uh, Old Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and the, the new. And so, and then this ark just went missing. Well, Mary is the new ark, carrying in her own body, not uh, the manna in the desert anymore, but him who said, he is, I am the bread of life. And not the rod of Jesse, but him who is Christ the priest himself, the eternal priest. And, uh, and also not the Old Testament, the Old Commandments, but the one who said a new commandment, who had the authority to say, you have said, heard it said unto you, but I say to you this, who who, uh, who was above the law himself. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peels of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. This is the biblical equivalent of a drum roll. Now, now, the God's temple and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. Ladies and gentlemen, listen up. We're about to see the ark. Then we move on to chapter twelve, and a great portent, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, hang on, and a crown on her head—a crown of stars. What happened to the ark? What happened to the ark? There's the ark. I saw the ark. Here it is. She was with child. She cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. Now I told you that original sin, one of the uh, one of the punishments for original sin was pain in childbirth. So would our lady have pain in childbirth? Did she have original sin? No. She certainly suffered. She certainly suffered in her lifetime. But would she have suffered that pain, that punishment of original sin? No. So, so who is this woman who is suffering pain in childbirth? Well, read on. Another fourth appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is a male child who is ruling all the nations? Who is that male child who had authority to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Yeah. And now, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then there arose uh, a war in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, what are we to make of all of this? A woman clothed with the sun and the ark of the covenant and so on. Let me... uh, let me quote again my um, favourite pope at the moment. And uh, this is from Pope Benedict's uh, homily from 2007. We've heard his words for 2005, and 2006, and now 2007. He's probably giving the homily for 2008, even as we speak. But since we're not online, we'll just have to wait for that until a bit later on tonight. <laughs> The woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, surrounded by 12 stars. This is a multi-dimensional image. It's got many meanings. Without any doubt, a first meaning is that it is Our Lady. Mary, clothed with the sun, that is, with God. Totally. Totally clothed with God. Mary, who lives totally in God. Surrounded and penetrated by God's light. You see, we have to use material images to compare because we, how do we explain God, is, what's heaven like? Oh, it's going to be like this blinding light, this beautiful, glorious light and so on. Well, yes, but it falls so, so far short, doesn't it? But we have to use human, human images. What? We're human. We have to use these images, a banquet. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, a wedding banquet. Uh, Mary who lives in, in totally in God, surrounded and penetrated by God's light, surrounded by the 12 stars, stars uh, that is, by the 12 tribes of Israel, by the whole people of God, by the whole communion of saints. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And at her feet the moon, the image of death and mortality. I didn't know that. But that's at her feet. Death and mortality. That's been, she's, she's on top of that. (laughs) Mary has left death behind her. She is totally clothed in life. She's taken up body and soul into God's glory and thus placed in glory after overcoming death. She says to us, take heart. It is love that wins in the end. Pope Benedict, he's got a very direct style. (laughs) The message of my life, says Mary, was this. I am the handmaid of God. My life has been a gift of myself to God and my neighbour. And this life of service now arrives in real life. May you too have trust and have the courage to live like this, countering all the threats of the dragon. So that's the first meaning of the woman whom Mary succeeded in being, the woman clothed with the sun. She's the great sign of the victory of love, the victory of goodness, of the victory of God, a great sign of consolation. Now, we also get to this other question. Now, well, well, how come she's suffering pangs in childbirth? It couldn't be Mary. Well, as the Pope says, this is a multi-dimensional image. This woman who suffered, who had to flee, who gave birth with cries of anguish is also the Church, the pilgrim Church of all times, in all generations. She have she has to give birth to Christ anew. To bring him very painfully into the world. And don't we know what that suffering is? The um and with great suffering. Persecuted in all ages, it's almost as if pursued by the by the dragon, she had gone to live in the wilderness. And really to be to be Catholics, to be followers of Christ, these days we have to be living in the wilderness. At some at some point, we have to be countercultural. Uh, uh, during World Youth Day, I met uh, people from from uh, m- well, many different countries. But uh, I met one one young lady from Iceland. She was actually originally from Texas and uh, moved moved to Iceland, and she was translating Icelandic literature. And, for uh, those of you who are Tolkien fans and fans of The Lord of the Rings, he was, he and his, his, uh, group of fellow writers, nicknamed the Inklings, uh, they were, they were great so devotees of Icelandic literature as well. Uh, I am not. I never read it. Now, but she, she was telling me, I said, look, didn't the Pope, didn't Pope John Paul go to Iceland? She said, yes, he did. I think Iceland's got like two dioceses or something, I don't know, 2,000 Catholics in it. It's just not a very, very highly Catholic population. It's just so dispersed. But um, the, she said that most of the people there in Iceland are from are from Poland or Thailand. I was just amazed. But she said, well, yes, the Catholic I said, well, what's the state of the Church in Iceland? She said... It's very fervent. very strong. She said, there aren't many of us, but those who've got the faith have got it. We've really got it strongly. The faith is going very strongly in Iceland. They're on fire, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> now, and I met people from other countries who said, who said similar things. They said, look, you know, in my country we, we don't have, we don't have much, but all those of us who've got the faith have got it very strongly. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to be a, a, a bit in the wilderness with Our Lady and with the Church uh, at times, yeah, as we read in the book of Revelation. Well, uh, that, that covers a, a good deal, most of really what I wanted to, wanted to look at on the, on the assumption. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Anthony English. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.